0: listening to Sunday Sermons from Warren Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org. Turn with me this morning, your Bibles, to the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at lots of different verses and things today. And I want you to fasten your pew belts because we're going to go on a fast journey today. Christmas is such a special time. But Christmas didn't just happen one time. It's going to happen again. The first Christmas, Jesus came to us to bring to us salvation. The second time he comes, he's coming as the sovereign king of the universe. Things will be different. As you look in the book of Revelation chapter 1, I want you to think about some things this morning. First of all, where was John? He's the author of the book. We know that from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1, verses 4, and verse 9. All of those verses tell us that John wrote this book. where was he? He was on the Isle of Patmos. He had been exiled out there because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He had been preaching the gospel and and the authorities said, no, that's enough. And so they took him as a common prisoner, put him out and exiled him out on an island. What they didn't know and realize is probably the best thing they could have done. Because it was there where John receives this revelation it is not the revelations don't put an s on it what it is it is what it is not is that it is not the revelation of john no matter what your king james bible says in the titles this is the revelation of jesus christ that was given to john on the isle of patmos who is it written to? In Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, you see that the Bible says, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. The first and the last. And what you see, he tells John to write in a book. And what you're looking at today in your Bible is that book. And send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Why? Why seven? There were more churches in Asia than seven. Why these seven? We'll answer that hopefully in a little while. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So we see who wrote the book, who it was written to. And then in chapter uh, four, we see a very special thing that takes place. In chapter 4, there is a scene there where John tells us that he says, As After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, underline that, speaking with me saying, Come up here, underline that, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Underline after this. What is after this? After the church age. Let's look at these seven churches. Revelation chapter two and uh, chapter two through chapter three. We look at the church at Ephesus, found in Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven. This church. Was started, I believe, or the church was established in 33 A.D. on the day of Pentecost. This section of Scripture, or this dispensation of the church at Ephesus, and I believe that these seven churches. As I asked you the question earlier, why only these seven? I believe that these seven. We know that the number seven is the perfect number in Scripture. That's that's not uh, even uh, in any doubt whatsoever. So I believe that these seven churches represent for us seven different dispensations of time through the church age. This church at Ephesus, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7, started in 33 AD, goes to about 100 AD. It's called the loveless church. They had left their first love. The church at Ephesus... Was started somewhere around 68 AD. If you look in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, you will find that somewhere around 44 AD, the church, the center of the church, moved from Jerusalem to a place called Antioch. Jerusalem, a Jewish based area where the church was being persecuted like never before. And the church is scattered throughout all the earth. And then we have uh, the church center moves to a Gentile area called Antioch. And here's a fascinating thing that it says there in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. It says that the believers there were first called Christians at Antioch. You know, they had been called the disciples of Christ, they had been called the followers of the way, they had been called all other types of names, believers, these followers of Jesus, but here in Acts chapter 11 verse 26, somewhere around 44 AD, about 20 years before the church at Ephesus was founded, we see that the the Christians are first called Christians here at this point. So this goes to about 100 A.D., the church at Ephesus, the loveless church. Then let's look at Smyrna, Smyrna, the church at Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, somewhere from around 100 A.D. Now, no one understands these are not fixed and fast and literally wooden, you know, dates. These are approximate dates of what events and things that are going on. The church at Smyrna, the word Smyrna... Has as it roots, is its root word the word myrrh, which is an embalming fluid. Basically, is what it is. It's something that is used to to put on. Um, it means bitter. It literally means bitter. So in verses eight through eleven of chapter two, this church age lasted somewhere around from 100 A.D. to 313 A.D. This is called the Suffering Church. This is where the persecution. Uh, from the Jews and from the Roman Empire is coming like never before. Great persecution. Christianity is banned by the state. Uh, Christianity flourishes and organizes. Two things that we see in the history of the church, if you study church history, two things happen when the church flourishes like never before. Poverty and persecution. Persecution. Those two things, when you see those two things in scripture and in church history, you see the church flourishing. And I can understand why, how that riches and everything working and being okay, we get just a little apathetic. But the church at Smyrna, it was a time of bitterness for the church, terrible persecution. Hundreds and thousands of Christians being killed. Babies being used as target practice for the Roman soldiers with their spears and their bows and arrows. Christians being fed to the lions there for sport. Then we see the church age of Pergamus, Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. This is approximately some, somewhere from 313 A.D. to 590 A.D. This is what's called the church of Satan's city. If you read there in those verses, you'll see that uh, here we see the state persecution ends. You say, well, that's a good thing. Well, it was except for this point um, that the church now begins to marry to the state. Constantine, who rose as a leader, a Christian leader, takes away all of the persecution of the early church. In fact, he embraces it so that he becomes not only the leader of the country and the nation and the area and the world as it's known at that time, but he also moves into a position of leader of the church. You have things like the the Edict of Milan that gives safety to those who are um, a part of the church. Christian doctrine is established Church organization is happening. We see that in the east, now we see at this time that the the church splits into two sections, the east and the west. Then let's move to the uh, next phase, and that is the phase of the church of Thyatira, verses 18 through 29. This is the timeline somewhere between 590 A.D. and 1517. AD. This is called the adulterous church. Why? What happened? This is where we see what is called the dark ages of the church. You have the early middle ages historically. You have the high middle ages. And you have the late middle ages historically. It's going on. The renaissance begins. Reformation fires are burning. There was such poverty and such oppression And there was the very rich because the church had become very, very rich and they were in control. All these things are taking place. Not only were they in control of the church, but they were in control of the state. The Bible was not in the hands of the people. The Bible was, was chained to the pulpits. All authority was within the Roman Catholic Church. Now, during this whole time as well now, We're just looking historically but during this whole time as well there was always a remnant of believers who refused to follow the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. This is where the rise of the papacy comes in. We see that the Reformation fires start burning. Remember the guy named Martin Luther? I mean, you go over this whole time period of 590 to 1517, it would take us weeks to carry you through every step of that. But this is where the rise of the pope and the papacy, not only do they become the leader of the church, but they become the leader of the state as well. And so the church at Thyatira is called the adulterous church because they are refusing to follow the teachings of Christ. It is a forced religion. They go in and conquer, and it's here where you see that there are things going on, such as the Crusades and all the things that are happening there. Look next at the church at Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. What was the, what was the uh, condemnation that Jesus made to this church? They were a dead church. Sardis comes at this time somewhere around 1518 A.D. to 1796 A.D. What takes place at this time? The church is under bondage through the power of the papacy. The people are poor. The people have nothing. The church has lost its moorings. They've Oh, they go back all the way to the church at Ephesus of leaving their first love and it was one step of degradation down after another. And here we are in this age where there's a monk who says something's not right. And his name was Martin Luther. And what happened was he began to study the Bible. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? He began to study the Bible, and he found some things there, not only in his own conversion, and we don't have time to tell his whole story, but he was a monk who was not saved. And God brought to him and allowed him to be able to rediscover this whole truth of justification by faith. And it's at this time where he begins to move forward and to do the things that need to be done. In challenging the papacy, the Reformation starts. You have the Reformation that starts in three different locations, in Germany, in Switzerland, and in England. Martin Luther nails the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church there in Germany. And there he starts and strikes the match of a Protestant Reformation that people would come back to the truth of the Word of God. You see, because during the time of the Thyatira Church, it was the rise of Muhammad as well that takes place. The Crusades take place. Muhammad came up. He had all these many different gods, and he saw all of them there in northern Africa. And he decided that he had this vision. He decided that there should only be one God. So he chose the sun God, Allah, and and went around killing everyone that refused to worship Allah because he chose that Allah would be the only one God. And so he destroyed the whole church there in northern Africa. Constantinople is taken over. All of the areas of Alexandria, the greatest library that have ever, ever, ever had in Christendom was all wiped out because of Mohammed. And so the popes rise up and say, we're going to take back the city of Jerusalem and we're going to take back the Holy, Holy Land and we're going to destroy. So they went around conquering people and consigning all of the men into the army and this is where... This is where sprinkling comes in as well when it comes to baptism. In the Crusades, the Pope, as they would be leading their armies, they would go in and con- take an area back or conquer that area. There would be hundreds of thousands of people, and they would take their priest, and they would give them a, 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 a hyssop, uh, which is just a, a branch with leaves on it, and they would walk down through these hundreds of thousands of people, And they would just sling water all over them, forcing them and making them into Christians. And that's where the church and why the church was called the dead church. The Reformation takes place in America. You have the Anglican Church, which is the Church of England. You, that, were in, that was in Virginia and Maryland. You have the Congregationalists that were in New England. You have um, the Baptists who were in Providence, Rhode Island. You have the Roman Catholics who were in Maryland. You have the Quakers who were in Pennsylvania. You have the Presbyterians um, uh, who were, were there as well in Pennsylvania. You have the, the Methodists that were in Maryland and in New York. And so the Reformation begins. The truth is coming back out. Martin Luther brings back and rediscovers justification by faith and that the proclamation of the true word of God and separating from the teachings of the Catholic Church and all that had happened. Then you have the church at Philadelphia. It is the only church here in, this, in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. It was the only church that Christ did not have a condemnation against. In fact, he calls them the faithful church. This is what's known as the missionary area, well, era of the church. It's a time somewhere between 1792 and 1950. I was born one year later, 1951. I remember Southern Baptist. I don't remember the, uh, the event of it because I would, would have been only like four years old. But Southern Baptist at that time, here was their theme for the whole year, a million more in 54. A million more in 54. And you know what that, that theme was all about? It was that Southern Baptists had decided they wanted to baptize a million people for Christ. And the evangelistic fervors started. In fact, it is the only time in the history of Southern Baptists that we have ever won to Christ a million people in one year. Last year, do you know where we were? Somewhere around 350,000. And if you trace back to 1954, it was the, one of the greatest years ever evangelistically. You have the rise here of the evangelicals in England and Scotland and America. You have John Newton, William Cowper, William Wilberforce, the great uh, slave Uh, who fought for slavery to be destroyed, the abolitionists. You have the Sunday school movement with Robert Rakes that comes up. You have Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of all preachers. Um, You see, in in Scotland, you have the migration of people to America. America, you have men like D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday. (laughs) You ought to read some of the things about Billy Sunday. He was a professional baseball player and got saved through one of these big crusades and things that were going on. It was a tremendous time of evangelism fervor. And God called him to preach, and he was rough as a cob. One day he was preaching in this church, and it was time. The music had finished. It was time for the preacher to (laughs) preach, and there was no preacher there. Everybody was looking, saying, Where's Billy Sunday? We didn't have GPS then to track him down. He was running around. All of a sudden, the side door flew open. Billy Sunday comes running fast as he can run. He hits the stage and he slides all the way across the stage and he jumps up when he ended his slide and he said, Safe in the arms of Jesus. He would do things like take the chair like that and stand up in that chair and rock it back and forth over the edge of the the stage. But he was a preaching machine. This was the time of the Philadelphia church. The church it had was faithful in proclaiming the gospel throughout the world. You had people like Gypsy Smith. Then you had on the the other side of that the false religions that would rise, such as the Unitarians, the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists. And then here we come to where we are today, the church at Laodicea. The church at Laodicea, verses 14 through 22 of chapter 3, from 1950 to the present. What did Jesus say about this church? They were disgusting. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, and you make me sick to my stomach. What has happened from that evangelistic fervor, the faithful church coming back to the gospel message and proclaiming it around the world with all these great mission organizations and schools and seminaries and colleges and all the stuff that was happening? Raising up pastors and missionaries and those who are called to ministry. And now these same churches today, I mean, these same schools and universities today are as heathen as they can be. No wonder the church at Laodicea, Jesus calls this period of time as a lukewarm, disgusting church. We have forgotten and we have fallen into everything that's happened here. We've not only left our first love But we have invited Satan in. There are churches today that do not preach the gospel. There are churches today that have homosexuals serving as pastors. There are churches today that accept all of this social nonsense and ideas that we see around the world today that is disgusting in saying that there's not just a two genders of a man and a woman, but that there are some, the last I checked, some 86 or 89 different types of genders. That is not only ridiculous, it is blasphemous because God said, I created them male and female. And you have churches today supporting that sort of thing and saying, oh, it's okay. No, it's not. Now, I'm not saying that that sin is greater than any other sin. I want to tell you, sin is sin. Paul said he was the greatest and the chiefest of all sinners. And I want you to know that this preacher was probably his his first assistant. We're all sinners. We're all condemned by our sin. But I want to tell you, The the standard of God cannot change. And we as sinners who have our minds and our hearts upon the word of God and the things of God, we have got to protect the purity of the word of God and the church of God. Even though we are imperfect in how we do it, the purity is still there. We cannot cower to society and to the culture of this world that says, no, God is wrong. God is right, and everybody else is wrong. Call the disgusting church. The church of Laodicea, what does the word Laodicea mean? It comes from two words, Laos and Otomea. Laos is the word where we get our word, laity, or people. And then you have otomia is the word for law, or rights, or governing. And so Laodicea means what? The rights of the people. Everybody and his brother is screaming for their rights. I want to tell you something. As a Christian, you don't have any rights. You have the right to proclaim the gospel that God gave to you, but you have the right to shut your mouth about all the other things and put yourself to work doing what God has called us to do. Our rights are surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Then we see the rapture of the church that takes place next. Now, we could spend a lot of time on those churches, and I probably spent too much time, but you need to know and understand where we're coming from why Christmas phase two is so important and why that God in his long suffering and in his patience and in his love has absolutely allowed all of these years and given us sign after sign and given us his word that clearly lays out for us how that he has planned for his coming again. He doesn't tell us when, but he tells us why. The rapture of the church. What is that? Revelation chapter 4 as we read verse 1 notice what it says that there was a trumpet that sounded and john was told to come up here go with me over to 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 would you please 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 and i want you to see something here 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 But I would not have you to be ignorant by beginning of verse 13. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do we believe that? Yes, we do. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are fallen asleep. In other words, the question that Thessalonica was, Lord, have those that have died, have they missed have they missed your coming? And Paul straightened them out and said, no, you, just hold on. Let me explain to you again. So what's going to happen? Verse 16, for the Lord himself, who's going to do it? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an arch- archangel, with the what? Trumpet of God. Sound familiar in what we just read in Revelation chapter 4? The trumpet, come up here. It says, the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That is the same word where it's interpreted or translated in in Revelation chapter 4, come up here. The word rapture itself... The word rapture itself is not found in our English Bibles, but neither is the word Trinity. But we believe the doctrine of the Trinity because the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. And people who don't believe in the rapture of the church say, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. The word, in fact, it's a greater term than the word rapture. The word rapture actually came into the Latin Vulgate, the translation of the Bible. And it was the word "raptura. But here, the word literally means, here's what it says, the trump will sound, and we who are alive and remain, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be snatched out of here. That's what the word means. We're going to be snatched out. Come up here. And so we see the trumpet, verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4. We see, come up here, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Then we see the judgment seat of Christ. What, there are two judgments. The judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. And then you have the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20, chapter 20 verses 11 and following. The judgment seat of Christ is where you and I, you and I will be judged for our rewards in heaven. Our sin has already been judged. Praise the Lord. Amen. Our sin was judged there at Calvary when Jesus paid the price for our sin. But here, as the church is snatched out, I believe the very first thing that's going to happen is going to be the judgment seat of Christ. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it says that we will give an account for what we have done for the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that if we have done what God has called us to do, if we've built our life on gold, silver, and precious stones, or we can build our lives on wood, hay, and stubble. It says the wood, hay, and stubble will be burned, but only gold, silver, and precious stones. What does that mean? It simply means this, that we've got a lot of, a, a lot of stuff, a lot of baggage, That people are trying to say they're going to get to heaven on and it's not going to happen. Like being good. All of us ought to be good. But you can't be good enough to go to heaven. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. Revelation 3:10 says there's none good, no not one. Revelation 3:23 says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is none righteous. Listen to me. If any of us, if any person could ever be good enough to go to heaven, Jesus' death on the cross was the most, it was the absolute worst tragedy of all times and a waste of time. But because he did die on the cross, it confirms the fact that the only way that we can be saved is through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 says that we will all appear. All who? Who's, who, is, who is Paul writing to in the, uh, there in 2 Corinthians? To the church. He's talking to believers. It is here where we will receive those crowns of righteousness, the crown of life, and all the other five different crowns that God has for us, for those who have loved him and served him. Is there where we receive our rewards in heaven? First thing that's going to happen when we're taken out, snatched out of here. And John displays that for us here in chapter 4. The church is mentioned 19 times up to chapter 4. And it's not mentioned again until later on in the end of the revelation, chapter 20, 21. Why is it not mentioned? Because the church is not there. And what is happening on this earth is not for the church. Then we see the church is caught up, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, the trumpet of God caught up together, 6 verses 16 and 17. Then begins the seven-year tribulation period. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Look at that passage. This is a passage that people just look over and they don't, they just kind of gloss it over and those that don't believe in a rapture and don't believe in a time of tribulation uh, and don't believe in the antichrist and the the, the literal antichrist individual and antichrist system. Notice to what what the apostle Paul writes here in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 8. I want to read them very quickly for you. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus, what are we talking about? What's the context? The coming of Jesus. And what? What else? And the gathering together to him. So what's he talking about? The Lord comes in the air, First Thessalonians 4 says, and we're going to be snatched out and gathered with him. That's what he's talking about here, all right? Verse 2, not to be soon shaken in mind, troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as is if from us as though the day of Christ had come. What's the day of Christ? His literally coming to the earth for judgment. So that has not happened yet, but the church has been taken out. 1 Thessalonians chapter, I mean, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The church has been taken out. Christ's return to the earth has not happened yet. Remember, 1 Thessalonians 4 says he comes in the air for his church, and the only people that will see him will be the church and the true believers. He's straightening out their understanding of what the, the coming of Christ is all about. He's saying, Look, he has not come to establish his kingdom yet. Thessalonians, listen, he says, Let no one deceive you. In other words, don't believe all these other teachings. And you know, I've had, I've had people say that, that the, the rapture of the church teaching is, is, is some early uh, teaching and premillennialism is some early teachings. No, it's not. It goes all the way back to the Bible. And to Paul's day, listen what he's saying. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day. What day? Christ coming to the earth to set up his kingdom. Will not come. Say that with me. Will not come unless what? What's going to happen? The falling away comes first. Same word as being snatched out. Same word as come up hither. Not only is there a falling away of apostasy, but there is a snatching out. What's going to be snatched out? The church. The falling away comes when? First. And then the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Who is that? That's the Antichrist. Folks, you and I will not know who the Antichrist is. Because the Bible tells us we're going to be taken out before the Antichrist comes. And therefore, if we're taken out before the Antichrist is revealed, that means we're not as a church going to go through the tribulation. So mark off the mid-tribs and the post-tribs and be a pre-trib. Because that's what the Bible says. Now notice he describes for us in verse 4 what this guy does. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. That is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9 where it talks about the abomination of desolation. Where the Antichrist goes into the temple and yes, it will be rebuilt. He goes into the temple and he proclaims himself to be God. You say, well, that was... That was uh, fulfilled back when Antiochus Epiphanes goes in and offers a sow on the altar. No, that was a partial fulfillment. Not completely. And I don't have time to walk you through all of that. In fact, I'd love for you to study Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, the 70 weeks of Daniel. What is he? he is worshiped, he sits as God, Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul saying, look, I've told you these. Listen, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time? There's something holding the, the uh, tribulation and the Antichrist. Something's holding them back. The Scripture says here, Paul says, it's something that restraining. What can restrain evil? The Holy Spirit of God. And only the Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit of God live? Within the heart of every believer that is truly saved. Without the Spirit of God, there is no salvation. So what is going to be snatched out? And, you, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is what? Read those words. Taken out of the way. The church is going to be taken out. The Holy Spirit of God, as we know it today, will go with us because the Holy Spirit lives within us. And then all literally hell will break loose on this earth when the Antichrist is revealed and He establishes Himself as God. So, Brother Ken, I just don't believe all that, Well. Your argument's not with me, your argument's with the Bible. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, everything, the stage is being set one world government, one world monetary system, one world religion. All of that, all the stage is being set. One world government, international government. That means, folks, that things are not going to get better on this earth. They're going to get worse. Can I get amen? amen. We that We do know the end of the story. You're exactly right, Ms. Linda. So don't think that government is the answer to our problems. They're not. Because government is going to be, it's going to be more universal. You've got the European Union there works right now in place to have what's called the North American Union between Canada, United States, and Mexico. The groundwork has already been laid for that. You see now the one, the one world uh, monetary system. Cashless society. Think about this. Debit cards, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. The mark of the beast, you won't be able to buy, sell, or trade without that mark. What is that mark? I have no clue. But the Bible says there will be one. And I believe it's going to have something to do. Uh, I don't know exactly what it will be. But it's going to be the number of man, which is 666, as opposed to the perfect number of God, 777, representing the holy trinity, 777. 666 representing the unholy trinity, man, the beast, the false prophet, and the antichrist. And so all of these things are going to happen. Gathering together, the day of Christ has come. Let no one deceive you. Then you see literally, starting in Revelation chapter 6, you see the seven seals. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 5. The seventh seal contains seven trumpet judgments. So the seventh seal is opened, and there are seven more trumpet judgments that come out from chapter 8 verse 7 to chapter 11 verse 19 then there's an interlude there's such judgment there you, oh it's like this man you got to you got to stop and take a breath there in revelation chapter 11 2 through 12 you see the two witnesses that are brought on who have been proclaiming the gospel the 144,000 revelation chapter 7 the 144,000 have have been sealed and protected as they're proclaiming the gospel during the time of the tribulation period. Because when the church is taken out, the tribulation begins. The man of sin is revealed. And then you have the counterfeit trinity in Revelation chapter 12 through chapter 14. You have the dragon, the anti-God. Then you have the beast, the antichrist. And you have the false prophet, the anti spirit. And then at the end of the seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet opens up seven bowls of judgment. And these are the judgments of God. Revelation 15, 1 through 19, 21. And then we see at the end of this tribulation period, the second coming of Christ to the earth. Christmas, phase two. But there won't be any... There won't be any pretty trees all lit up. We're enjoying those now. There won't be, won't be a lot of tinsel and parades and all those things. We're enjoying those now. When Jesus comes to the earth, Christmas phase two, it's for God's business and judgment. So now we're under grace. And now we're in that in-between time. But the rapture is coming next. And once the rapture comes and the believers in Christ are gone, the Holy Spirit of God is taken out, they will be unleashed upon this earth through the power of the Antichrist and his system that's already being put in place like you've never seen before, all the judgments in, in chapter 6 through chapter 12 that you see, all of that, and I don't have time to explain all those. I don't want to tell you, it is going to be the worst thing that you could have ever imagined. And if you're not saved, you will go through that. And then when Christ comes at, At this second coming in in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, he comes to the earth with his saints. Now, read that passage. Because it says he comes and his saints are with him. Now, if his saints are with him, how did they get with him? The rapture that took place over here. That's right. He came in the air for the saints. They were taken out. And then seven years later, according to the word of God, a seven-year tribulation period divided into two three-and-a-half-year periods. The first three-and-a-half, the tribulation. The last three-and-a-half, the great tribulation. And then Jesus is going to return to the earth with his saints. And then we'll see there the battle of Armageddon. And then we'll see there as well, there will be a period of peace and righteousness will last for a thousand years. Last week we read in Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6, six times it clearly says a thousand year reign of Christ on this earth. That Satan is bound for a thousand years. There's absolute peace and prosperity. There's absolutely no need for law enforcement. There's no need for prisons. There's no need for jail. The line of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, will be ruling from the throne of David there in the city of Jerusalem. And everyone will bow to him as king of kings and lord of lords. And no one will step out of line. There'll be literally thousands and hundreds of thousands of people born during that millennial reign of Christ. And they will have never known what it means to be tempted with sin. Because where is the great tempter? He's in the pit. He's been chained for a thousand years. But for some reason... And the only reason I can think of is because those that, that, came, that, that come through the millennium, that are born during that time, have never known temptation. And it, wouldn't, it would not be, God would not be fair, like that word fair. He doesn't have to be fair, but he wouldn't be fair if they were taken into heaven and didn't even know what sin was all about. they will outwardly obey because they're afraid not to. Because he rules with a sword. But inwardly, many of them will not be saved. And so the Bible tells us that Satan is loosed for a little season. And he makes his final charge. He draws angels. He draws people from the earth to come to a final battle, the battle of Gog and Magog. And then Jesus basically speaks them into destruction. And we have what is called now, we talked about the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, now you see the great white throne judgment of God, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 14. The lake of fire, Satan, demons, fallen angels, and unrepentant sinners are eternally separated from God here at this great white throne judgment. And then in Revelation 21 through 22, you have the new heaven and the new earth. Now, we've just walked through the entire book of Revelation. And if I was a betting man, I'd I'd have bet I couldn't have done that. Well, what's it all about? I gave you, last week we had the charts, and we had a little technical problem, and you weren't able to get them. You should have a copy of those charts, a literal (laughs) copy of those charts uh, there with your outline. I want you to look at those, study those. If you have a question, If you want to talk about those, come see me talk about But here I want to close this service today simply saying this. Christmas is coming. Not in just a few days where we'll celebrate what we call Christmas and remember him coming to us. But Christmas, phase two, is coming. The church is going to be snatched out of here. And if you don't know Jesus... You're not ready. When Jesus comes to reward his servants, whether it be noon or night, faithful to him, will he find us watching? Will our lamps be all trimmed and bright? If at the dawn of the early morning he shall call us one by one, when to the Lord we restore our talents, Will he answer us well done? Have we been true to the trust He left us? Do we seek to do our best? If in our hearts there is naught condemns us, we shall have a glorious rest. Blessed are those when the lord who the Lord finds watching in his glory they shall share. He shall come at the dawn. Or at midnight will he find us watching there? Great O Him. Jesus is coming to earth again. What if it were today? Coming in power and love to reign. What if it were today? coming to claim his chosen bride, all the redeemed and purified over this whole world and earth scattered wide. What if it were today? Satan's dominion will be o'er, oh, that it were today. Sorrow and sighing shall be no more, oh, that it were today. Today. Then shall the dead in Christ arise, caught up to meet him in the skies, when all the glory there we will see with our eyes. What if it were today? Faithful and true, would he find us here? If he should come today. Watching in gladness and not in fear, if he should come today. Today. Signs of his coming are multiplied. Morning light breaks in eastern sky. Watch for the time is drawing nigh. What if it were today? One day when heaven was filled with his praises. One day when sin was as black as could be. Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men. My example is he. One day they led him up Calvary's mountain. One day they nailed him to die on the tree, suffering anguish, despised and rejected, bearing our sins. My redeemer is he. One day they left him alone in the garden. One day he rested from suffering free. Angels came down o'er his tomb to keep vigil. Hope of the hopeless, my Savior is he. One day the grave could hold him no longer. One day the stone rolled away from the door. Then he arose over death. He had conquered, now is ascended my Lord evermore. One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved is coming. Glorious Savior, this Jesus is mine. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day, he's coming. Oh, glorious day. That day is upon us. If you're not saved, you're not ready for that day. And today you need to come to Christ. Surrender your life and your heart to him. Receive his forgiveness of your sin. Receive his gift of eternal life. Come by God's grace through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We have nothing to offer him, but he offers us everything that he did. And it's for you if you will repent, And turn from your sin and turn to Christ and receive from Him that gift of eternal life. Today is that opportunity to you. What if it were today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we close this service to a time of invitation, your invitation Lord, this is the most serious time of any service where, Lord, those are invited to make their profession of faith and their trust in you public. You say that if we confess you before men, you will confess us before our Father which is in heaven. But if we deny you before men, that you will deny us. So, Lord, today I pray that there's not any soul here in this congregation today or those that are watching by live stream that have not trusted you, Lord, Lord and Savior. But I know that in a crowd this size and those that are watching, there are bound to be some who've never trusted you. Oh, they may have a form of godliness. They may, they may, even, they may well, even read their Bibles. They may even come to church occasionally. Lord, they may even do good deeds, and they're, they're a good, really good moral person. But, Lord, they'll die and they'll go to a devil's hell without you. And so, Lord, today I pray that in the name of Jesus, that that heart would bow today and confess Jesus as Lord and surrender their hearts and lives and leave their sin and come to you, their Savior. And, Lord, this is your invitation. It's your people. You do what only you can do. It's your Holy Spirit that draws and woos. But I pray this, Lord, that there's someone whose heart is being touched today, is being warned by that power of the Spirit, saying, come to Jesus, that today they will do that right now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons. If you want to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org.